glad to, I'm glad to see all of you all here this morning. I was just telling a couple of the folks, pastors really uh, feel tension when we come to one of these long weekends because they know a lot of people are going to be away, and we understand that, but I'm glad you're here this morning uh, to look at the Word uh, with me together. Now, let's have a word of prayer before we start today. Father, thank you so much for the privilege we have of looking into your word. Thank you for the opportunity that I have been given to share. And I pray that uh, by your spirit, you will instruct all of us, the teacher and the student, that we might glorify you in the days to come. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, like we've done on other occasions, I want to review basically what we've been going over, what the book of Daniel's all about. Most people think of Daniel being a book about prophecy, and of course it is. But the other side of the coin is the theme that runs through the book is the sovereignty of God. And this sovereignty of God allows us to then understand what he's doing because he's working everything after the counsel of his own will. So as we start this morning, I want to remind ourselves of the outline. It's the sovereignty of God in uh, Daniel's deportation from Israel. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 through chapter 7, the sovereignty of God over the Gentile nations. And then in chapter 8 through 12, we're talking about the sovereignty of God over Israel and God's people. When we come to chapter 5, and that's where we are today, uh, we come to Belshazzar, or Belshazzar, and uh, we want to note the outline here as well. I want you to notice that in verses 1 to 4, we see Belshazzar's uh, transgression against God. And then in 5 through 29, the revelation of God's displeasure with Belshazzar. And then the condemnation of Belshazzar in verse 30 and verse 31. It's a very simple outline, and, uh, but there's a lot here. And we want to see not only what does the text tell us, but also see what are some of the implications that can be applied in our own lives. Now, we see the end of the Babylonian kingdom this morning. Uh, and, and we see how it all comes about. So let's look at the text together, but in preparation for it, I want you to think in terms of some of the historical data that is behind this particular chapter. And I want to say to you that uh, ancient history during this time is somewhat uh, sketchy, and so people are always arguing back and forth as to what is really being said uh, and who is who and whose name is the correct name, and also uh, the fact that they have more than one name. And all these things cause great problems for us in trying to see the historicity of uh, this uh, particular uh, book. But Belshazzar is now the king, only because his dad is in captivity in uh, Arabia. And uh, he's ruling uh, while the... Medes and the Persians, the Medes in the beginning especially, uh, began to conquer 
the Babylonian Empire. As a matter of fact, everything in the Babylonian Empire is under the control of the Medo-Persians, except for the capital city. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But uh, Belshazzar is the king. He's a subordinate king under his dad. And in 1882, there was a chronicle of uh, the Bottomus, who is uh, the king, the daddy. And, uh, uh, and uh, in this, uh, his name is, uh, the, that name is for uh, Belshazzar. And he, it refers to the crown prince. So he's the crown prince recognizing daddy is still uh, functioning, although he's in exile. The other thing I want you to notice here is uh, that Nabonidus uh, is, is married to a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So what you have then is that Belshazzar is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. And there's 23 years in between chapter 4 and chapter 5. And uh, we want to notice that. And I want to make another observation. When we say he's the, he's the grandfather, Semitically, in the Semitic language, when they say father, it could be the daddy or it could be the granddaddy, and so on. So that's the way the term is used here. Calls, he's called, Nebuchadnezzar is called his father, but it's really his grandfather in the way we would look at the term. Everybody with me? Now, with that in mind, I want you to notice that at the end of this chapter, Belshazzar is assassinated. And we know from history that is in 539. That's how we come up with the death of Nebuchadnezzar and the death of uh, Belshazzar, 23 years apart from chapter 4 to chapter 5. Everybody with me now? Now, let's look at the text. Uh, oh, there's one other thing I want to tell you that I think is, is just amazing to me. Belshazzar, as I said earlier, is under siege. They've conquered the whole nation except for the city of Babylon. Now, let me tell you about that. They're getting ready to have a banquet here as we go into this chapter. And how can that be when they're under siege? Well, let me tell you a couple of things that I think are under uh, are great significance. The Babylonians had supplied food uh, and so on for the city for 20 years. That's stored inside the walls. Now, let's talk about the walls. This is incomprehensible to me, but this is what history tells us. The wall around Babylon is 75 feet thick. It is 330 feet high. That's like a 20-story building, and it's all the way around the city, and then there's this great moat around it, and so they couldn't get in. Holding it under siege is not going to work when you've got 20 years. So what did they do? They devised a plan. You see the, uh, Ephra, uh, the uh, river Euphrates flows through the city of Babylon under the wall. So what did they do? They found the lake not too far away. They dug a canal from the river to the lake and diverted 
the Euphrates River and the supply of water for the city. That's amazing. But that's, the thought is they have all of that sense of security and therefore have a banquet even though they're under siege. Now, let's look at the text. Notice Belshazzar the king. Now, we know his daddy is the king. Belshazzar the king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, point. When we talk about him having this great feast, I remember when Betty and I were in uh, Scotland. We had the privilege of going to Scotland, and we went through the, the castle there in Stirling, and uh, they had this banquet hall. We actually got to go inside. Huge place. And they had replica, wooden replica of the king and the queen's thrones. And we got the idea, honey, come and sit down. We're going to have somebody take our picture. Well, that just started a mass lineup of people that wanted their pictures taken. But this is the kind of place that they had in the castle. And that's what Belshazzar Belshazzar has uh, this night. They're having a big feast of a thousand people. Now notice, when Belshazzar tasted the wine, that is, when he was getting a little tipsy, uh, when he, he was, had tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold, the silver vessels, which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, grandfather, had uh, taken out of the temple. Now I want you to notice this. We're talking about the transgression. Here is the sin of Belshazzar, and he names, he emphasizes certain things for us to keep in mind. Notice when he says, uh, bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple. They were temple things. They were uh, taken by Nebuchadnezzar. They were taken out of the temple in Jerusalem in order that the kings and nobles and the wives and the congregants could drink from them. And then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken, here we go again, out of the temple, the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, class, look up here. When you see that kind of detail and that kind of repetition, you know God's trying to tell us something. And the fact is, he's upset with the vessels being taken and now being abused by Belshazzar in the feast. And it goes on to tell us a little more. It said they brought the gold vessels that they had taken out of the temple, out of the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. The king and his nobles, his wives, his concubines, drank for them, and they drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone. He's talking about the idols that they worshipped as their gods. How do I know that? Well... If you'll go with me to verse 23, jump ahead a little bit, you'll see what the text says. But you have exalted yourself, talking to Belshazzar now, against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking from the wine, uh, wine from them, and you have praised the gods of gold and silver, now watch it, who do not see, hear not, and understand. They don't understand anything. They're dumb. 
but the God in whose hand is your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. So we're talking about uh, the idols. Remember in Psalm 135, the idols of the nations are but gold and silver. They have a mouth, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. Uh, they have ears, but they cannot hear. And in their mouth is no breath at all. They're dumb, they're blind, they're deaf, and they have no life. And those who make them, the psalmist say, will be like them. Yea, and those who worship them, they're going to also be this kind of people with the uh, lack of abilities uh, that uh, normal people have. Now, there's the, the transgression of Belshazzar. He is glorifying the other gods with the vessels out of the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then notice the revelation that comes to Daniel, uh, to, uh, to Belshazzar, as Daniel tells us about it. Suddenly the figures of a man's hand merged, emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that was uh, doing the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his joints went slack. His knees began knocking together. In other words, he's gone from being happy, 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 everything just fine, until he is shaking, as we would say, in his boots. His knees are knocking together. I'll tell you a little story. My, my three older boys all went through their rebellious stages. And I think all of you who are parents, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, they had gone out and they had, uh, I want to say purchased, but they didn't. They stole cigarettes with one of the, or two of the deacon's kids. So it was the preacher's kids and the deacon's kids. They were young and they were going to try uh, smoking. And so we finally caught them and we took them out in the backyard and I made all three of them light up in my presence. And then I said, start smoking. And one of the oldest ones who's been here in our services before, he, he just puffed away, but he wasn't inhaling. So I said, oh, boys, I want you to inhale it. Uh, no big deal. Little Paul, our youngest one, who's a counselor here in the, in the city now, his little knees started shaking like this. And every time I read about Belshazzar, I think about his knees shaking together like my, my son Paul. But that's what we see. And he begins to see this writing on the wall. So he then calls uh, for the wise men. He says, whoever can interpret this inscription uh, is going to be the third in the kingdom. Now, verse 8. Then all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the instruction uh, or make known the interpretation to the king. Then notice what happens. Then the king, Belshazzar, was greatly alarmed. His face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. Now, that's causing some commotion during the banquet. There are unusual noises beginning to creep through the rest of the palace. So, verse 10 tells us, and the queen entered the banquet hall 
hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you and your face be peeled. There is a man, talking about Daniel, in your kingdom. She remembers it. Now, the queen here is not the wife of Belshazzar. His wives and his corcubans are in the banquet. We have just been told this. So who is this lady? It's the queen mother. And so she comes in and said, I remember back when your daddy, the grandfather, your grandfather uh, was able to find information and instruction and interpretation uh, from uh, this Daniel. So they call for Daniel. And note that when you, uh, verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king spoke to, to, and said to Daniel, Are you Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom your father, the king, brought to, uh, from Judah? Implied answer, Well, yes, that's who I am. Now, verse 15. I just had, just now, had the wise men, conquerors, uh, conjurers, and, and were brought in before me, and that they might read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me. Now, I want to stop right there. Class, all these wise men, but you remember back in Daniel 4 when the Nebuchadnezzar was king, he had made Daniel the leader of all the wise men. But now, 23 years later, the wise men are called in, and Daniel's not there. Now, there's a number of reasons that have been suggested. Uh, some, he was way on a trip, or he was, how could he be on, on a trip when they're under siege? Uh, but uh, some say, well, he was retired, or he, he was sickly. Another one, and I think this is probably more to the point here, it, it is the fact that they just started ignoring him. He's a foreigner, so they neglected him, and that's probably what happened. So the king's uh, mother has to remind him about this guy and all of his ability. Now, verse 17, here's the interpretation. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, You keep your rewards. I don't want to be third in the kingdom. O God, the most, O king, the most high God, granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your granddaddy. Now, note, most high God. That is the term that uh, Nebuchadnezzar came up with uh, back when uh, he was uh, confronted with the powerful, superior God of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And it's first referenced in chapter 3 and verse 23. Then it's mentioned, uh, 26, 326. And then in chapter 4, it's repeated again five different times. Now, when you get to chapter 5, it's mentioned twice. O king, verse 18, the most high God granted to Nebuchadnezzar. Then you go down until, verse 21, until he recognized that the most high God is rule over the realm of mankind. So we have this continuation. Now look at it. I want you to understand, this book is about prophecy, but the prophecies are the result of a sovereign God who's in absolute 
control. And in the polytheistic world, uh, they would say, well, this is the most high God. There are others, but this is the most high God. And they're not even going to argue that point. They're just saying, if he's the most high God, King Belshazzar, why are you not honoring him? Everybody with me? Now, we get down to uh, verse 21. I want to read it. He was also driven away, talking about Nebuchadnezzar, from mankind. His heart was made like that of a beast. By the way, heart here has the idea of mind. When you go back to 24, mind is the word that is used. Reasoning is the word that is used. Here, it's heart. And it's used here in verse 21. It's used again down in verse 22 and so on. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Now, let me explain. In the Hebrew thinking, the heart could be used in three ways. And in the Greek culture, in the New Testament, it came out the same way. Heart uh, could be your volitional uh, part of your thinking. Uh, that is, uh, in, uh, for example, it says here that Daniel in chapter 1 decided in his heart that he wasn't going to eat the king's meat. That's chapter 1. So heart is used as part of the thinking, the will. Okay, Heart is also used as the emotional center. Uh, for example, it says, you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart. See? And, and then, but it is also used as in mental capacities. For example, in Matthew 15, it'll say, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. So you've got to think in terms of heart in the Bible as being used as the mental capacities. Everybody with me? So there's no contradiction here or misunderstanding. Now, it says, uh, his heart was made like that of a beast, verse 21. His dwelling was with the wild donkey, and he was given grass to eat like the cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is the ruler over the realm of man and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Now, watch it. Here's the key pivotal verse in the chapter, yet you, his son, grandson, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Now, what I want you to see this morning, child of God, is there is what I call a generational responsibility, a generational responsibility, and we see it here. That is, Nebuchadnezzar had all these experiences, and uh, Belshazzar knew all about them. Belshazzar was responsible to act on what he knew and what uh, Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had learned about the Most High God. But he ignored it, and God holds him accountable for that. Everybody with me? So it's generational responsibility. And uh, I want you to note <clears throat> that as we look at the scriptures, there are two things that we believers. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, neither one of them, they're believers, but they were still responsible for responding to truth. But for us today, not only are we individually responsible to respond to truth, 
but we are also responsible to encourage and pray for others that they will respond to God like they're supposed to. A generational thing for you and for me. Everybody with me? Now, I want you to look at a couple of passages with me that I think are significant. We're going to take the time to do it because I think it's important. I want you to go with me back to the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and I want you to go to chapter 4. Hold your place now in Daniel 5, but go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And I want you to see that in chapter 4 of Deuteronomy, we are given some instructions. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And it's verse 9 and verse 10. Now watch what the text says. In light of Belshazzar's responsibility to respond to truth, we have a responsibility of responding to it, but we also have the responsibility of confronting others with that truth. Look what it says. Only give heed to yourselves, Moses says, and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things which your eyes have seen, lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. But make them known to your sons and grandsons. You see that? Now, two things. Not only are we responsible for responding to the truth and not forgetting it, we're to share it with others. After, watch it, we've applied it in our own heart, the text says. And when we uh, incorporate it in our life, then we're qualified to do what we're supposed to do and share it with somebody else. Now look up here. Don't want you to miss it. It's something we know, but we need to say it. We can't share truth unless people can see the truth in us. Everybody with me? So we're to share it, but we have it in our heart first. Now go to chapter 6. Once you see the same thing, Deuteronomy 6, look at verse 5. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today, you shall keep in your heart. Okay? Then it says, and you shall teach them diligently to your sons. Implementation in your own life and then instruction in the lives of others. Go to chapter 11. This is an important subject. So this is the third time we're going to see it in the book of Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 11 and verse 18. How am I going to encourage people who have generational responsibility for truth? I'm going to pray for them. We're going to look at a verse there in a minute. Uh, But uh, we're also going to instruct them. Look what the text says. You, verse 18, Deuteronomy 11, you shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and in your soul. You shall bind them as signs on your hands, and they shall be on the frontal of your forehead. And you shall teach them to your sons. See it? Implementation, appropriation in their own life, and then instruction in the lives of other people. Now, as we look at Daniel chapter 5, and Nebuchadnezzar, and uh, Belshazzar, we know they're not believers, but God still held Belshazzar responsible, and he holds people today responsible for the truth. Our churches, listen to me, our churches are not full today, 
And one of the reasons for it is the next generation is moving further and further and further away from God. Do you agree with that? And part of it, child of God, is we're not sharing the truth like we're supposed to. But they're still responsible. Now, one other thing. In uh, First Chronicles, and you might want to write this verse down. First Chronicles 29.19, what does it say? It says uh, David was going to pray for Solomon as he became king, that he will have a perfect heart, that he will guard and protect and perpetuate the truth, and he will obey the, the commands and the testimonies and the statutes, and he'll build the temple, do his ministry, and do it with the materials that we have, uh, Daniel or, or David had uh, provided. So the bottom line is, child of God, we're to pray. I pray for, and when we did the prayer seizures, I told you this, I pray for my three sons, their wives, and my grandkids, and my great-grandkids now, that they'll walk with God, and they'll have that perfect heart, and they'll respond to truth. I taught my boys, my wife and I, best we could, confronted them with truth, and they're all in ministry, for which we're very grateful. But uh, we had to pray for those boys from before the time they were born. Am I making sense? We are responsible to help the next generation. Now, once we see that, I want you to note that we go ahead and we find that in verse 24, Daniel is now ready to interpret this writing on the wall. Then the hand was sent from him with this inscription was written out. Now this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tittle, upharsen. Mene in the, uh, in the Aramaic translated into the uh, Hebrew comes up mena, mena, mena. And it's a word, a verb that means to number. In other words, your days are numbered, king. And then tickle is a, another verb form. You're weighed in the scales, and you're found warning is the idea. And then farsen is a, another verb that has to do uh, with uh, the king being uh, the kingdom being divided. Look what it says. Uh, he says in verse 26. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, uh, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tickle, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Paris, now there's a different word there. Uh, because the word up there, euphorsen in verse 25 is a plural form for one thing. And it's not when it comes down into verse 28. But the you in front of it, you have to know the languages. By the way, uh, Aramaic and Hebrew use the same lettering system. They just do it different. Sort of like, I think it's China and Japan. They have exactly the same kind of uh, lettering. But they interpret it differently. They pronounce it differently. But it's the same wording uh, or, or spelling. Now, notice Perez is just a word that means your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and 
the Persians. Now, child of God, here's what we discover. When you go all the way back, to, and you might want to remind yourself, write them down. When you go all the way back to Daniel 2.39, and they have the statue, and the different metals that are mentioned in that statue that Nebuchadnezzar uh, is confronted with. We find that thou, king Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Then there is another kingdom, and then a third kingdom. Now we know what the second kingdom is. We have the demise of the Babylonian Empire by the Medes and the Persians. As you go down to verse 30, it says, And that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. He was assassinated. So Darius the Mede <coughs> received the kingdom at the bay about the age of 62. So we see the demise of the Babylonian kingdom and the ascendancy of the Medo-Persian kingdom. By the way, primarily in the beginning, it's more the Medes, and then the Persians begin to control uh, and take over. But you remember in 239, the second kingdom is not identified, but it is identified as we work our way through the book. From 239, we have the second kingdom, and here in verse 28 and 29, we have the identity of that second kingdom. And then in chapter 8 and verse 20, if you'll hold your place here, go over the chapter 8 and verse 20, you'll see this second kingdom that's not identified initially. In 820, it is identified again. And the ram, well, we're not going to go into the context there, but the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Medo-Persia. See? So this kingdom, the second kingdom, is mentioned in chapter 2, but unidentified. It's mentioned in chapter 5, and it's identified. It's mentioned in chapter 8, and it's identified. One more. Go over the chapter 10 and verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. Daniel's still alive during this Medo-Persian kingdom. Everybody with me? So as we work our way through the text, we're going to see more information being given. And as we get into chapter 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, it really starts mushrooming with information. Now, there's something else that I want you to see here uh, this morning. We've got a little bit of time, but I want you to notice verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean, the king, was slain. I want you to stop and think for a second. Nebuchadnezzar got caught in this trap of pride and exalting himself. His punishment was that he was uh, made to think and act like an animal. And it went on for years. And the implementation of his judgment was 12 months. You remember that? 12 months transpired before the judgment was actually carried out. Now, in chapter 5, what do we see? 
the same night Belshazzar was assassinated. Now, here's what we see here, folks, that I think is important, and I want you to hear me and hear me well, because we live in a society and even in a Christian community which expects God, if he loves us, he's going to respond to us right now. Answer. According to the Bible, that is not true. Even his judgment doesn't operate like that. It was 12 months before judgment was carried out with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. It's the very same day he's confronted that uh, Belshazzar is assassinated. Now, class, that's what I call a providential pace. God functions on his own time schedule. Amen? He's in absolute control. I have been battling cancer for nine years. When they first discovered, they told me, if I don't do anything, I'll be dead in six months. Well, nine years later, folks, I'm still here. It's called God's time schedule. Amen? Providential pace. The other thing that I want you to see is what I call degrees of punishment. Nebuchadnezzar was punished for pride and arrogance, and he was made to be like an animal for years. Belshazzar, on the other hand, <clears throat> was killed. Now, when you stop to think about capital punishment and those kinds of things, most people who get themselves in that situation would prefer to get a life sentence Nebuchadnezzar, as opposed to capital punishment, a death sentence, Belshazzar, okay? The implication I get from that is one person is more responsible before God than the other. Granddaddy faced it, but Belshazzar knew what granddaddy had faced, and he did it anyway. Now, I want you to go with me. Hold your place here, and I want you to go with me uh, to the book of Revelation and chapter 20. Hold your place here in Daniel and go with me to Revelation chapter 20. Because I want you to see there is what we call degrees of punishment. Uh, to use an illustration, all of us are dirty, rotten, stinking sinners, and we all deserve to go to hell. But, the other side of that coin is we recognize that the sin of uh, the Nazis and Hitler in particular is much more severe than some of the sins and the lifestyle that we live. We're still all dirty, rotten, stinking sinners. Don't misunderstand me. But there are degrees of uh, evil that is, uh, that is carried out in life. And God responds to that. Revelation 20, verse 11. This is what is called the great white throne judgment. Everybody with me? Now, I want you to notice, this is a judgment. Look up here. This is a judgment that does not determine whether a person is going to heaven or hell. That's decided already. Okay? But it is a judgment 
that involves determining the degrees of sinfulness and the degrees of punishment. And it's only for unsaved people. This is the white throne judgment. We, believers, are going to face judgment at the judgment seat of Christ that involves the loss of rewards or the gaining of rewards. The white throne judgment is the degrees of punishment for sinfulness of people who've never accepted Christ. Look at it, verse 11. I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence the earth and the heaven fled away and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books, look at that, the books were open and another book was open which is the book of life. Now look up here. The book of life is, my name is in the book of life of that I've accepted Christ. So that book is here. And they look at the book. God looks at the book. Their lives uh, have never responded to Christ, and they're not in the book of life. So we're going to look at the other books that it talk about their sinfulness. Now look, and uh, it says, the books were open, verse 12, And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that are written in the books according to their deeds. Our judgment is in accordance with our obedience as a believer in God's family. These people are simply going to be judged according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in them. Death and Hades gave up the uh, the dead which were in them. Now, look up here again. And these are things I know some of you know, many of you know, maybe all of you know. But there are other people, and I have to be conscious of that. They don't know some of the stuff that we take for granted. And the point is, Hades, hell, is not the final destination of unsaved people. Amen? They are there until uh, the dead gave up the... Hades gave up the dead were them... They were judged, every one of them according to their deeds, and death and hell were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, there's the final judgment. Everybody with me? Now, we go back then to uh, Daniel chapter 5, and what do we have? Nebuchadnezzar is judged on one scale. Belshazzar judged more severely because of his sinfulness in uh, chapter 5. Everybody with me? So we have providential pace mentioned here, and we have degrees of judgment mentioned here. Now, one other thing, and we'll be through. Notice it says in verse 28, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Everybody with me? When you get down to verse 31, so Darius the Mede received the kingdom about the age of 62. Notice Darius the Mede. There is a Darius who is a Persian, but Daniel specifically says Darius the Mede. And that has caused so much controversy. So many people say, Daniel, here it is. Here's a mistake. He didn't know what he was talking about. Well, guess what? They found that Darius the Mede in historical references, is a guy by the name of Gubaru. 
And I've gone through and researched as many of the volumes as I possibly could. And that's the conclusion that they've come to. He had two names. Just like Daniel is Belshazzar. See? Had two names. A lot of the kings had different names depending on what people they were governing and what section of their kingdom. So Gubaru is another name for this man that Daniel calls Darius the Mede. Notice, class, and with this we'll be through, Darius the Mede received the kingdom. He wasn't a conquering general. He was given control over the Babylonian Empire. As a matter of fact, would you go over to chapter 9, just for a second, 9 and verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Hazarias, of the Median descent, who was made king over the kingdom of the Chaldeans. In other words, he was appointed as the king. He didn't conquer. Everybody with me? And the point being, as we shall see, the Medes are in the, the ascendancy in this Medo-Persian conglomerate in the beginning. But when it's all over, it's the Persians who are really in control, the Medo-Persian kingdom. Now, class, that is an interesting chapter. It has all kinds of stuff there that's not necessarily prophecy until you get to those last verses when it says, I want you to know, by the way, the new kingdom after Babylon is Medo-Persia. Okay? How did Daniel know that? You know what the liberals say? He couldn't have known that. How did he write it in this book? Well, somebody forged his name after the fact. Folks, our Lord doesn't work that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray now that you would give us understanding as we continue our study in the book of Daniel. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.